Uh, I want to welcome those of you who are guests with us this morning. Welcome to Emmanuel Church. We are honored that you would join us for worship this morning. We are seeking to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. That's our vision as a church, and um, we would love to tell you more about that. So um, you should have received a worship guide as you came in this morning. On the back of that, there's a, there's a Connect tab uh, that you can fill out, and then later in the service, we'll pass some baskets, some offering baskets, and that would be your offering to us, would just be uh, that, that little tab that tells us a little bit about you and ways that we can follow up with you. Uh, we'd love to get you some information uh, about our church. Um, there is, uh, this Tuesday evening, there is an opportunity for you to, to get to know us a little more. We, uh, we do this occasionally, we call it Emmanuel Coffee House. And um, it's right here. It's in the foyer of the church this Tuesday evening from 5.30 to 6.30, roughly. And we have coffee and desserts. And a few of our leaders are there. I'll be there. Uh, John Tavius will be there. And um, we'll just be there to, to hang out, to informally fellowship together. Um, you can ask questions. Um, and, and it's just a good time to, to maybe meet some others who are newer to the church. And so um, if that's you, if you're, if you're newer to our body, whether this is your first time or you've been visiting for uh, a few Sundays, uh, this is a great opportunity for you to come and to just meet some leaders and, and fellowship with us. So I want to invite you to that. That's uh, Tuesday evening. Um, members, we do have a members meeting next Wednesday, September 11th, um, from 6.15 to roughly 7.45. Um, uh, we might get out a little bit before then, but, but generally speaking, that's, that's when that's happening. And then the last thing I'll tell you about is um, Discover Emmanuel. So um, if, if you've been with us for a season and you want to learn uh, more about our church, uh, dig in a little bit deeper about um, kind of our values, um, our beliefs, if you want to take a step toward membership, uh, then Discover Emmanuel is for you. It's on a Saturday morning, uh, September 21st from 9 a.m. to about 12 and um, it's just we're going to drink from fire hydrant and just um, look at all of those things, who we are, what we believe, how we live together. So um, if, if you want to find out more, if you want to take a first step towards membership, uh, this class is for you. Um, it doesn't obligate you to anything. And so don't um, don't feel like, man, if I come, I'm obligated to, to take a next step in, in membership. You're not. Um, but this is a great chance to learn more, um, to find out who we are. So want to put those things before you um, come to all that are appropriate for you. Um, all right, I think that's everything. Let us uh, read God's Word, and then we'll dive in together. We, um, we're back in Romans. So um, if you've been with us, we uh, have studied through Romans chapters 1 through 4, and then we took about a nine-week hiatus. Uh, we spent eight weeks in Proverbs, and then last week uh, we looked at gospel communities. We heard some, some really powerful testimonies. Wasn't last week good? I mean, it was so good, and uh, we saw a baptism, so last week was beautiful, um, but now we are back in uh, the book of Romans, so we're picking up in chapter 5. So we're, this morning we're going to be looking at the first five verses of Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, these verses should be on the screen. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, we have a Bible for you in the foyer that we would love to give you. You can come to our Connect table right outside of these doors. We have a, a, a Bible for you. Let's read what God's Word says together. Romans chapter 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. 
Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is the word of God. So for four chapters, the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Romans has been establishing uh, this wonderful doctrine that we refer to as justification by faith. Uh, the big question that Paul is addressing in, in the letter to the Romans is this. How is a person made right with God? Like how, how is a person brought into right relationship with God? Paul begins his letter to the Romans establishing this universal reality that no one is automatically in right relationship with God. There were some people to whom Paul was writing that may have thought that because they were Jews. And see... Jews were the chosen people of God. And so they may have thought that simply by virtue of their ethnicity, of their lineage from Abraham, that they were in right relationship with God. And what Paul wants to establish with the Jews and also the Gentiles is that no one is automatically in right relationship with God. In fact, what Paul says is that all of us, every person finds themselves under the wrath of God because of sin. Whether Jew or Gentile, what Paul says is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul will say in Romans chapter 3 that there is none righteous, not even one. There's not one person who is faithful and upright in the eyes of God. Our, our sin condemns us and our best efforts fail us. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 that no one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. In other words, our greatest attempts at keeping the rules as a way of walking our way into favor with God, they will not work. We can't earn our way in. But... Paul goes on to say that all hope is not lost because there is a way for sinners to be made right with God apart from works of the law, separate from earning our way in, namely through faith in Jesus. So Paul writes in uh, Romans 3, starting in verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, though it's attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him, that's Jesus, as an atoning sacrifice in His blood received through faith. So this is the great doctrine of justification by faith. To justify means to make right. It is to be placed in right standing with God. It's to be in the right with God. And what Paul is arguing here in Romans 3 and 4 is that, that we are justified by faith, by faith, by trust in Jesus. God forgives sinners. He counts them as right, as covenantally faithful, as, as having done everything right. Not on the basis of their actions, 
but on the basis of Christ and his actions. And so the perfectly lived life of Jesus counts as your obedience and covenant faithfulness. Isn't that wonderful news? The substitutionary death of Jesus counts as your sacrifice and payment for sin. And the resurrection of Jesus conquers the consequences of the curse and results in eternal life. All, all by faith. Trusting and hoping in Jesus as your Messiah. That, in a nutshell, is Romans 1 through 4. Now, in chapter 5, having established this amazing gospel message, Paul now asks the question, so what does this mean for us in the here and now? What does it mean for us that we have been justified by faith? In other words, uh, what are the implications of our salvation? Or to put it more simply, what's the fruit of our justification? Notice the first word in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, therefore, whenever you come to that word in Scripture, what's happening is what, is what has just been said is being connected to what is about to be said. Paul is tying what he's about to say to what he's been saying. Therefore, on the basis of. And on the basis of what? He summarizes it there in verse 1. On the basis of this fact that we have been declared righteous. We have been justified by faith. On the basis of that, he's about to make an argument. Then notice that word since. Since we have been justified by faith. So he's, he's setting, setting it up for us to see what it means for us to be justified, to be declared righteous on the basis of faith in Jesus. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning. Since it is true that we have been made right with God by faith, what does that entail for the believer? We'll see three things. Three fruits of justification. The first thing that we see here that Paul highlights that comes to us as a result of being declared righteous is that we have peace with God. It's peace. We have peace with God. Verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse implies something, and I've already alluded to it. And it's this. It implies that before a person is justified, he does not have peace with God. Instead of peace, there is strife. The Bible's word for this is, is enmity. There is conflict. On the, on the streets, we might use the word beef. There, there, there's beef between you and God. There is unresolved conflict. Romans 1 tells us that because of our sin, the wrath of God is being revealed against us. In His holiness, God is opposed to all that is unholy and vile. This is actually good news, right? That our God is holy. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't ignore evil. He's going to, in His justice, deal with all evil, all sin. He's going to deal with all of it. Isn't that good news? That there is a day coming when all sin... And all evil will be done away with forever. That's good news. The bad news is that because we're sinners, we find ourselves in that category. And so the wrath of God is actually aimed at us. And until our sin is dealt with, we find ourselves 
on the opposing sideline to God. Now, I want to pause right here for just a second and get myself into trouble, if I may, because I feel like we need to. I feel like I need to. In, In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah was commissioned by God to deliver a tough message to the people of God. The people were in rebellion. They were living in sin. They were were walking away from the Lord. And so God raises up the prophet Jeremiah, and and he sends Jeremiah to the people to call them out for their sinful ways, to call them to repentance, to call them back to covenant faithfulness and obedience. And one of the things that the prophet Jeremiah indicted, specifically the leaders of God's people of doing, was not being honest about the sin in people's lives, and the situation that they found themselves in with God. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 13 says, From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated my people's brokenness superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. The prophets and the priests in in Israel were proclaiming the peace of God when there was no peace. I fear that we do this sometimes. Sometimes we preach peace, peace, when there is no peace. We, We live in a society that really likes this idea right now of religious pluralism. It's this notion that you can have your God and I can have my God. You can have your ideas of the afterlife. I can have my ideas of the afterlife. And we can agree to disagree. And both ideas are equally valid. And in the end, it's all going to pan out. Everybody just gets a free pass to heaven. It's really in vogue right now. Peace. Peace. When God's word would tell us there is no peace. I think more often than not, we do this more through our silence than through our words. When we don't talk to our unbelieving friends about Jesus, we act as if they're at peace with God. When very likely there is no peace. We act as if the whole world is at peace with God. That everyone is a child of God. Sometimes we use this universal language of us all being the children of God. Now there's a sense in which that's true, right? Because God has made us all. But we're not all the redeemed children of God. In church, we, we dare not be guilty of preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now this doesn't mean that we have to all walk out of here and become fire and brimstone preachers. But I think it does mean that we need to recognize that everyone does not have peace with God. Let's not fool ourselves and pretend as if they do. And this begs a question this morning, and that's this. Do you have peace with God? Have you been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you experienced the forgiveness and the cleansing? Have you been counted in the right with God so that there is peace between you and God? There is no other way that you can be found at peace with your creator. Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus demonstrated that he was the way to God, that he is the only way, the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. But by the name of Jesus, all hostility ends. There is peace in the name of Jesus. 
Theologian Leon Morris observes that, that in this verse, Paul speaks of peace with God, not merely the peace of God. Thus, he's not referring primarily to a subjective feeling. He's referring to an objective reality. That because of Jesus, the justified are no longer enemies of God. We are in objective reality at peace with him. We have been reconciled. We can bank on it whether we feel it or not. That's good news. There are some days I feel at peace and there are other days I feel anxious. But if we are in Christ, we have peace with God. And yet at the same time, the knowledge of this reality, that we are at peace with God, it does bring this subjective sense of peace. The Holy Spirit assures us that we are God's children, that we are forgiven and loved. And the reality is that there are people all around us desperately in search of peace. And Jesus sends us and he says, blessed are the peacemakers. We are to be people of Peace by proclaiming the Prince of Peace. We call people to put their hope in the one who made peace through his shed blood on the cross. We are peacemakers as we declare that through faith in Jesus, you can go from being an enemy of God to being reconciled to God. You can obtain peace with God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's made us ambassadors for himself. Jesus makes his appeal through us to be reconciled to God. We are the mouthpieces of God sent to declare that there is a way to find true peace. Some are searching for peace through their religious efforts. They think that through religious zeal, they can attain peace with God. I, I think I may have told this story before, but uh, several years ago, I had some Mormon missionaries that showed up at my door. Um, and, and so for about eight weeks, we dialogued uh, about the gospel, about the differences in our religions. And, and, and one of the things that became explicitly clear in our conversations was that these brothers believed that they could find peace with God through their moral attainment, through their efforts. The, the mantra that they used over and over again was, we believe in uh, grace after all we can do. And so I finally just asked one of them, I said, uh, how... How good is good enough? How much religious zeal, how much moral effort gets you in? How do you know that you know that you know that you've attained to that third heaven that you believe in? When you put your head on the pillow at night, how do you know that you've done enough to please God? The reality was they didn't know. And it was because they were putting their hope in themselves there is no peace, church, in putting your hope in yourself. There is no peace in putting your faith in your own religious effort. Leon Morris says the justified person is no longer tormented by questions of his relationship with God arising from the fact that he is still a sinner. Sinner though he is, he is at peace with God because of what God has done for him. We find peace because it's not left up to us. Christ has done it all. He is enough. His work is sufficient to telestai. It is finished. And even the person who's not living by an overtly religious system, what we might call a secular person, 
That person is just as much in search of peace. Sometimes I hear, I hear this statement uh, made uh, that I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. You ever heard that one before? I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I think what a person means when they say this is that they're not following an established religious belief system, yet they haven't given up on uh, all notions of God or, or, or morality either. They've sort of gone to the religious buffet, and they, they've taken a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they've written their own rules, but it's hard for them to completely give up on God or on ethics. And that's because what God's word tell us tells us is that the law of God has been written on our hearts. We know that there's a right and a wrong, and if we're honest, we know that we've done wrong and that there we're accountable for that. And, and, and so we feel this sense of uncertainty even if we've labeled ourselves secular or, or progressive or, or or liberated or irreligious. There's, there's this turmoil within. Very few people truly feel peace because we all have this sense of unfinished business, of uncertainty. And we know that we need to do something to attain it. How do we find peace? What Paul is telling us is that we don't find peace by, by looking within. We don't find peace by creating our own spiritual path. We don't find peace by trusting in ourselves. We find peace by trusting in Jesus Christ, by looking to the finished work of Christ. The good news of the gospel is that we can have true peace, even in our bad days, even on our, in our worst moments, because peace is accessed through Jesus Christ. And so as the psalmist exhorts us, we can be still. We can cease striving and know that he is God. And know that he has reconciled us to the Father through his atoning work. Paul says, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. But something else happens as well, Paul says. Being justified not only uh, brings us peace, it also grants us access. That's the second thing that we see here, access. Look at verse 2. Paul says, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have also <clears throat> obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. That, that word that Paul uses, access, it's interesting. He's the only person in the, in the New Testament that uses this word, this word for, for access. It, there, there are two prevailing ideas about what exactly Paul's communicating uh, with this word. The first idea is, that, is the picture of gaining entrance into a chamber of a king. You see, in the ancient Near East, uh, kings <clears throat> would only uh, admit petitioners into their presence if, if they summoned them. You could only come near to the king if the king called you. It, if you tried to approach the king and he didn't call you, it could cost you your life. It was, it was risky business. We, we think about the story of Esther. You remember the story of Esther? Though Esther was made queen by King Xerxes, uh, she could not just go up to the king anytime she wanted. She had to be summoned, which is what made her, her move toward the king so bold, so courageous, right? That she went unsummoned to the king to make her request. But here Paul is saying something amazing. He's saying that because we have been justified by faith in Jesus, he says we have full access to God. 
We've been welcomed into the throne room. We've gained entrance into God's presence. Charles Spurgeon says, the path to the throne of grace is always open. There are no guards to bar the way. There are no set times to come. One hour is as good as any other for coming. Isn't that good news? The author of Hebrews exhorts us that since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, he says, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We can approach the throne of God with boldness because we have a high priest named Jesus who intercedes for us. He pleads his blood for us. Our justification means that there is, there is no process we have to go through to gain entrance to God's ear. We don't have to go through a washing ritual. We don't have to pay penance. We don't have to make a vow or take an oath. We simply come. There's a good chance that some of you walked in here this morning feeling the weight of your sin. Believing that there is separation still between you and God. That that there has to be some sort of penance paid to make things right with you and God again. Listen to me. The work of Christ is sufficient. You have been granted access by the blood of Jesus. You can draw right up to the throne I love what Tim Keller says here. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. And church, I want you to hear this too. We don't come to a king who lacks kindness or mercy. Spurgeon says, the throne to which the sinner is bid to draw near is a throne of superlative, unlimited, reigning grace. Grace that pardons, grace that regenerates, grace that adopts, grace that preserves, grace that sanctifies, grace that perfects and makes meet for glory. Grace from beginning to end. That is the throne that we draw near to. It is a throne of full, complete grace. Because of Jesus, we have access to this grace. This grace, Paul says, in which we stand. We stand in this grace. And this gets to the the other idea behind this word of access. This this language of of, of access pairs with this idea of standing in grace to communicate the notion of dwelling in a whole new reality, of a whole new realm. Colossians 1.13 tells us that God... Has, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. That we've been taken out of one realm and we've been placed in another realm. Through Christ, we've been brought into a whole new domain of existence, the domain of grace. We dwell in the realm of grace. We, we live in the land of grace. I can't help but but imagine it kind of like Willy Wonka. And the Chocolate Factory is my favorite movie. I know I reference this like once a month. But you know those kids, when they, when they first, that door first opens and they step into that room. And it's the most breathtaking thing they've ever seen. And then they discover that they're surrounded in a world of chocolate and candy and that everything is edible. It's like my... I mean, my childhood, can you imagine that? Everything being edible. And that's sort of what like Paul's saying here. 
He's saying that because of Jesus, we've gained access into this whole new world where everything is grace. We're enveloped by it. It surrounds us. Paul says we stand in it. We're knee deep in grace. Typically when we use that phrase knee deep, we're talking about something negative. We're knee deep in laundry. We're knee deep in in, in work. We're knee deep in bills. But here Paul says because we've been justified, we're knee deep in grace. As songwriter John Mark McMillan put it, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. We're drowning in grace. We breathe the breath, the air of grace. We live in an atmosphere of grace, and we boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Paul is saying to us, because we have been declared at right with God, we have access. We have access. But thirdly, number three, we not only have peace and access, we also have hope. Look back at verse two with me. He says, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says that since we've been justified, we rejoice in hope. Hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice more literally translates we boast. We boast, we brag. In other places, Paul actually speaks of of this boasting negatively. But here he says, if the object of our boasting is, is right, if our boast is in the glory of God, then it's a good thing. He says, we exult, we confident, triumphantly have confidence in the glory of God, the hope of the glory of God, the promise of a day coming when God's glory will reign. Paul says that there is this future day coming when all will be made new and the glory of God will cover the earth as waters cover the sea and God's glory will be manifest so that there is no more pain or sickness or sorrow or sin for the former things will have passed away. And Jesus declares, behold, I am making all things new. And he's saying, Paul is saying to the believer, he's saying that because of the finished work of Christ, because we have trusted in Jesus, we have a confident expectation of that day. It is coming just as surely as day follows night. In Romans chapter 8, a couple chapters from where we are currently, Paul says that those whom he justified, he also glorified. That if you have been declared to be at right with God, you are guaranteed glory. Some have called this the golden chain of our salvation. And here Paul's saying the same thing. He's saying because we have been justified, we will most certainly taste glory. There's no such thing as a person who experiences God's saving grace who will not experience future glory. This is the distinct nature of Christian hope. Oftentimes when we use the word hope, we we imply doubt. Man, I really hope that happens. There's an implied doubt in in how we say it. But it's very different for Paul. For Paul, hope implies certainty. It is the confident reality in something that is yet to come to pass. It hasn't happened yet, but he's saying it most certainly will. The day of God's glory will come. Because we have been justified, 
we will be glorified. But then Paul says something really unexpected. Something striking. Because he says, not only do we boast in the hope of glory, he says, we also boast in our afflictions. We rejoice not only in future glory, but we rejoice in present trouble. Because we know that affliction produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. Under God's good hand, what Paul is saying is that the suffering we experience in this life produces perseverance in us. The ability to endure difficulties with patience and with fortitude. And perseverance in turn as we learn how to endure It produces in us a proven character, a testedness. And that character developed through perseverance actually results in hope right here in the present. I love how Tom Schreiner explains this. He says, after one endures many difficulties, a strength of character develops that was not present previously. And such tested character in turn generates Hope, And he asked the question, and why does tested character spark hope? Because moral transformation, what we see God doing in us, constitutes evidence that one has really been changed by God. And thus it assures believers that the hope of future glory is not an illusion. Because we see God doing something in us now. Maybe you've said it like this before. I may not be where I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. And you can look back at who you used to be and go, man, that used to be me, God. But I've been through some things and I've watched you work in me and I'm not who I used to be. There's a real work going on inside of me. And so that results in hope. It's like, God, you're real and you're really doing this. And if you're doing it now, then I can bank on the future. It's going to happen. The day of glory has come. It's going to come. Because little by little, you're sanctifying me. And those whom he justifies, he sanctifies. And those whom he sanctifies, he will glorify. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Sufferings, says Douglas Moo, rather than threatening or weakening hope, as we might expect to be the case will instead increase our certainty in that hope. He says, hope is like a muscle. It will, only, it will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we exercise hope. And the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of challenging circumstances will bring ever deeper conviction of the reality and the certainty for that which we hope. You ever been with a seasoned saint? Someone who's, we might say, been through the ringer. And they've been tested by the fiery trials of life. And yet their hope has stayed steadfast. If you ask them why they have such hope, they'll tell you something like this. I tell you, my God, he's been faithful. God's always carried me through. 
God is good all the time. The struggles that they have endured, that they've walked through, have actually produced confidence in them that God is at work. And so the day of glory is more certain to them than ever before because they've seen God at work. And so Paul tells us that that justification gives us this hope not only to look forward to a future day coming, but it gives us a hope right here in our present striving and struggle. And so what Paul wants us to see in these verses is that justification, this wonderful doctrine that we have been made right with God through faith in Jesus, this is our security blanket. It assures us that we have been reconciled to God, that there is peace between us and God. It assures us that we have access to the throne of grace, that we are insulated on all sides by grace, that we live in the realm of grace. And it assures us, as Paul will later write in chapter 8, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Our current afflictions are meaningful. They are producing something in us that will result in more hope until the day of the hope of glory finally comes. The reality is we we tend to look for peace and for hope in our lives most often through a change of circumstances. That's where we tend to believe that hope and peace are found. If I can just change this, if I can just get a little more of this, if he would just be a little bit more like this, we're looking for peace and for hope in a change of circumstances. But what Paul is saying to us in these verses is that the basis of our peace and the basis of our hope is found in trusting in Christ. Not looking to our circumstances, but to the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And so in our moments of anxiety and in our moments of fear, in our moments of hardship and in our moments of strife, we look back to the cross and we look back to the empty tomb and we anchor ourselves upon this reality. I have been justified. Let's pray together. Father, we... We thank you for the good news of your gospel, that we are made right with you, not on the basis of our own merit, but on the basis of Jesus Christ. And God, we confess to you that so often we, we feel this angst in us to move past that message, as if it is only a message to get us in the kingdom. But the reality is, it's for every step along the path. That we never move past the gospel. That it is our justification that gives us peace. It is our justification that brings us to grace. It is our justification that gives us hope. And so, God, help us to anchor ourselves on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let us put all of our chips, let us push all in on Jesus. And anchor ourselves to him, to his finished work on our behalf. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.